Welcome to the New Mind Creator Podcast with your host, Maurice, the New Mind Creator. Today, I'll be interviewing Dana Diaz. Please make sure to hit the subscribe button so that you'll receive alerts when new episodes are available on Sundays at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. Also, please leave me a review on iTunes or Spotify. What was your most pleasurable moment? or something you remember from childhood that helped you escape? One of the things I remember most, it wasn't a particular moment, but just a collection of the same thing happening. It was with my great grandmother um, because she essentially loved me the most um, of anybody in my heart. Honestly, I I felt that she was my mother. So um, she had this old rocking chair is, you know, that dark wood of the 1970s. And she was always just sitting in it quietly, just rocking back and forth. And it didn't matter if when if I was little or even as I got older um, to the point where I was even a foot taller from her by middle school. She was very little, um, but she would always just pat on her lap and have me come and sit on it. And she would just rock me. She wouldn't say anything. She didn't sing or tell stories. She just rocked me quietly and kind of pet my hair. And it was so soothing. It just it, it was the most consoling peaceful thing that my soul ever felt in my entire life. So I always treasure those moments with her. And where did you grow up? Well, we were in Chicago. Um, and then my mother, see, my I was born to a teenage mother. She hadn't wanted me, but the family thought that she should keep me because they didn't want, you know, their only grandchild. And I was the only great grandchild to be raised by somebody else. So um, she moved us out of the city. Um, I want to say I was five or six years old, maybe, um, because she had been dating somebody for a while and they planned on getting married. And he lived in a suburb north of Chicago. So we ended up moving in with him. And that's where I grew up. And was that your biological dad? No, that was not my biological father. My biological father, um, you know, again, being a teenage pregnancy, he was actually younger than my mother. He was only 15 when I was conceived. So certainly, you know, reasonably, uh, he was fearful and, and, you know, saw the shame that my mother endured for being pregnant. But, um, you know, he did come around when I was born. Obviously, I don't have any memories of that because I was so little, but um, I'm told by some family members that he was around until I was a year or so old, but that's about when my mother started um, seeing the person that we ended up moving in with who she eventually married. And that was your stepdad, you know, became your stepfather. Yes. Uh, What was it like growing up with your stepfather I know he had some issues yeah well we call it issues we can call it all kinds of things but yeah it was it was abusive is what it you know it, it is um you know at first the thing is 
I my earliest memories of him, I remember him bringing me stuffed animals. You know, he was dating my mother, so he was trying to impress me. But, you know, I just never liked him. I was a child. I had no, no I didn't have reason. I didn't have anything I could say that he did this or did that. I just didn't like him. Um, just something about him. But you know, as time went on, and even before they got married, you know, when we moved in with him, my mother was working three jobs, I was told, and finally dwindled down to two, but she had to leave very early in the morning, and she was gone all day and most of the night, um, from my recollection. And so I was with him most of the time, he was in charge of getting me ready in the morning um, to go to school and, and, you know, whatever I needed afterwards. But um, that's when things would happen is when it was just the two of us, when there was no witnesses, when my mother wasn't around. And it was just little things at first. It was just being a little too rough when he was putting my pigtails in and it was, you know, smacking me, grabbing me too hard, you know, if I wasn't listening to him, Um, you know, but very quickly it turned into, you know, just straight up abuse. You know, I, I remember grabbing the phone once to call my mother to tell her the things that he was doing and saying, and he took the phone and started beating me over the head with it. It was, um, you know, being dragged out of bed by my feet, you know, hitting the floor, bumped along the way down the hall. Um, and honestly, I, it sounds terrible, but the physical, you know, aggression wasn't even as bad as the verbal because from the time I can remember the verbal abuse, he would tell me almost every single day that my mother didn't love me. He didn't love me. Nobody would love me. Nobody wanted me. I should have never been born. I was stupid. I was incompetent. You know, I, I, I wasn't worth anything. I would never amount to anything. Um, he shouldn't have to pay for another man's child. Just very, I, I mean, I, I always tell people, think of a five or six-year-old child that you know, and think of saying those things to that child every day, except I had to hear this until I was 18 years old and finally able to walk out of, out of the house legally. But it's very damaging to your, to your spirit and to who you are and your self-esteem and your, even your idea of who you are and your existence when somebody has, you know, essentially brainwashed you to believe it because you do believe it over time. And was your mother aware of what was going on? <laughs> well, she was never around when it would happen, but I would tell her, obviously, I, I thought she was my mother and she should do something about it. She's the one who put us in that situation. Um, she would say she would talk to him. Um, whether they had those talks or not, I don't know, but I know that I was definitely the, I would hear them fighting once in a while and I was the reason and she would return to me and tell me um, that I was lying to get attention and that he was denying that he never said those things. He never did those things. And even when I had physical marks, um, he would say that I self-inflicted them and, and they weren't self-inflicted. And it was very shaming for me. There were times I'd go to school in grade school and high school where, you know, 
I visibly, you know, something was happening to me, something, you know, and they would take me to the nurse's office and the nurse would take out the piece of paper with a very generic outline of the body. And she would examine me and mark on the paper where I had a bruise or handprints or whatever else, um, you know, and they would ask me, but I knew better than to expose what was going on because I was afraid I would you know, suffer more. So I just said, no, I, I have the bruise on my forehead because I walked into a door or I fell or, you know, yeah, that was just from playing too hard is where that hand mark came from. So, it, you know, I was lying to protect him too, but my mother was gaslighting me, you know, and, and trying to make me believe that it wasn't happening. So it, it was very damaging, you know, to me to do that as well. It definitely causes you to be very discouraged and lose hope in, in a lot of things. So a girl, a little girl becomes a teenager, a woman, and you're being battered physically, emotionally, and you're broken and you're 18 and you leave the home. Did you go to college or did you go somewhere else? That's the funny part of it. Uh, I actually wanted to go to beauty school, um, but my stepfather is a narcissist. And even though he did not want to claim me as his daughter, um, you know, certainly no child coming out of his home was going to beauty school because he said it was not good enough um, and it was not real school. So they uh, he, I should say, made me go to an actual university and I said, okay, fine. Um, I ended up getting into DePaul University um, where I studied journalism and psychology. Um, and, and I thought I was just going to get my degree and make a better life for myself and just walk away from these people. Because um, certainly as a teenager, things had gotten worse in the house. Um because I was standing up for myself and he didn't like that. And I was fighting back. If I was slapped, I would slap back. Um, and that only got worse. I I'd gotten strangled. I'd gotten thrown downstairs. So um, yeah, I went to university. I was just intent on doing whatever I had to do. And then I was going to move on and, and hopefully never see them again and live my own life. So DePaul is in Illinois as well. So did yeah. you, you were staying at home still? You didn't stay on campus? I did not stay on campus because he would not pay for me to stay on campus. And I could not afford the dorms. I could not afford an apartment. Um, so I, it, it was... It's not funny, actually. I just am a fighter. I am very willful and strong. So I stayed at various friends' houses, a night here, two nights there. Um, I had a boyfriend who was a little older, so I stayed at his apartment once in a while, usually on the weekends because it was quiet and nobody was there, and I could get my papers and schoolwork done. There were some nights that I stayed in my car at the train station, um, and I didn't like that very much. It got very cold. It gets very cold in Chicago in the winter and sometimes in the fall and spring too. But if I didn't have to sleep in that house, I, I really tried not to because it just, I couldn't sleep. It was always sleeping with one eye open because just the sound of his footsteps, 
you know, coming up or down the stairs. I just felt like they were coming for me because I'd done something or I hadn't done something. And it just, I could sleep in my car or somewhere else much easier than I could sleep in my own bed in my room at their house. And when you graduated, did you move out of the home then or when did you actually move out? I did actually move out my um, first year of college. Um, I just ended up moving in with my boyfriend because he just he just thought it was silly for me to be spending random nights wherever I could. So, you know, it was a it was a good situation. At least I felt safe. I could concentrate on my studies. And honestly, I had been pushed out anyway. Um, you know, the house that I grew up in, I was not welcome at. At the point where my mother and stepfather had their own child, which was his goal all along because I wasn't his child, you know, he had been very vocal about telling me that I would no longer be part of the family. It was just him and my mother and their baby, and I was not part of that family. So, um, you know, towards the end there, I feel like he definitely wanted me to leave. Um, I was, you know, once I turned 18, it was just like he knew I could legally not have to be under that roof and he didn't want me there. I didn't need to be there. So it was sort of a mutual uh, situation. So yeah, I just moved on and, and finished college, ended up even paying for, you know, the rest of my college myself and got a full-time job. I was working but then that relationship with that boyfriend fizzled and that's how I ended up with my uh, ex-husband right after that. So your ex-husband, he was abusive as well? Yes. So when I met him, that was at the beginning of my second year of college. I was only 19 years old. Um he walked into the office I worked at. I thought he was a jerk. I, he reminded me very much of my stepfather, the way he felt, um, you know, he sort of expected a certain servitude that I was not willing to give because I knew the personality and it wasn't of any interest. I vowed when I left my childhood home that there was no way I'd ever let anybody ever treat me that way again. Um, but, you know, at the same time, I was young and I was trying to be open-minded and, you know, there weren't a lot of uh, options for me as far as dating. And so when he did, you know, ask me to hang out once, I thought, well, it won't hurt. You know, maybe I misjudged him. Maybe I misread him. Um, and I, I still think I, I, I'm not sure if I did or didn't because he was very duplicitous in his nature, but I think that's just the nature of a covert narcissist. I didn't know what narcissism was then, but they can be very funny and charming, but then they can be very cruel and, and want to cause you this intentional, you know, pain and anguish. But, you know, he, he, he was very slick how he did it. So you, you, you realize it's happening and you see the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde nature, but you're not sure how to gauge it. You know, I didn't really know him. So I thought, well, you know, I'll try to get to know him because he can be nice and he can be funny, but he can really be a jerk too. So, 
you know, I think we fall into that trap of just kind of, let's see where this goes. And I didn't realize I would end up with him for 25 years and that it would be so bad. It's interesting. You just said something moments ago. You said you didn't feel like you had many options to dating. Why did you believe that? You know, <laughs> looking back, I can honestly say, you know, coming out of my childhood, I did not realize how codependent I was. And, you know, for people that don't understand what that means, you know, my mother was very emotionally distant from me. We did not have a close relationship. I did not feel love from her um, because she hadn't wanted me. She, I was a responsibility. And then between that and the abuse, she, you know, allowed, in my opinion, her husband to uh, inflict me with, you know, unfortunately, I really internalized this idea that I was not lovable, that I was not supposed to be here. I shouldn't, I didn't even know what I was doing here. So I felt this need, like I felt like I could only have worthiness in this world or purpose if somebody loved me. And it's a very, it seems very naive, but it, it was such a, it was such a focus, like a primary focus. And I don't know how to, you know, emphasize to people when your own mother can't love you, you came from her womb and she can't love you. That's a very, very difficult and very heavy burden to bear in your life. And you can't help but believe after you've been treated this way and it's you've been spoken to, you know, with, with those words that, that it must be true. So I felt like I'm looking around at friends and people I knew everybody's dating, coupling up, but nobody was really, in my opinion, interested in me. And so I felt that same unworthiness and insignificance that my mother and stepfather made me feel. So for me, honestly, I've, I mean, for lack of better words, I was desperate for somebody to notice me and to see some value in me and, and to love me. That's, a, that's common when someone has been abused, especially early on, um, because we only go in the direction of our most dominant thoughts. And if we're often abused and maligned, that's all that has been poured into our jug. And that's all we can reflect until we see something different or we are changed by the process of seeing something different. But that's that makes sense that you got into a relationship with someone who was similar as your stepfather. Exactly. And yeah, it makes so much sense. So when you you went through all of this abuse and even in marriage hmm. how how did you change the tide from that mindset because the mindset was so twisted as a child nothing you had to do with of course you were just you know implanted with all this hate and all these different things 
how did you begin to change your mindset? You know, it's really funny because it wasn't until almost the end of my 25-year relationship. We were married just shy of 20 years of those 25 years. And it wasn't towards the end. I just had this epiphany, you know, but I think what brought me there was that in our house, you know, yes, my, my ex or my then husband will say, treated me just like my stepfather did and and worse because in a marriage there's financial abuse, there's sexual abuse there, you know, but the same gaslighting manipulation, ironically, he did not hit me, but there were many threats of physical violence. So the fear was there. Um, And he was, uh, I, I actually have emails and texts that, you know, where he said it would be easier for him if one of us was dead. So, you know, definitely towards the end, I I actually did fear for my life. And and there were many situations where my life uh, was in danger with him. So throughout all this, in front of his family, because he certainly isolated me from my family, which I was fine with because I didn't have any need to you know, endure any more abuse from my mother or stepfather. And the, you know, their families tended, you know, to stick with them and and believe that I was just difficult and that I had been the one, you know, to that, you know, they just didn't know what to do with me. But regardless, my then husband's family was so, so wonderful. I mean, I always refer to them like Beaver Cleaver, like the old show, Leave it to Beaver. They were Mr. and Mrs. Cleaver that my mother and father-in-law couldn't have been the more perfect. Like they were the parents every kid wants. I honestly think I was more in love with them than I was with my husband. And, and I'm willing to admit that. And unfortunately, because of where I came from, it's reasonable to understand that too, but they were so good to me. And I think that they, during that 25 years, and unfortunately my father-in-law passed during that time, but, you know, between them and the extended family of my then husband, they sort of raised me, you know, and helped me grow up you know, with the esteem and and the self-worth and kind of made me see myself in different eyes because these are people that actually liked me, loved me, you know, thought of me as part of their family and, and, and thought I was funny and saw talent and saw my gifts and all these things you should have in your childhood, but I was getting them now. Um, you know, in that part of my life. So I feel that that helped me to get to a point where I was kind of standing on my own two feet and then kind of looking at my relationship like, okay, hold on. Like, I actually deserve better than this. And I know that what's happening here is wrong, you know, and I wanted to try. I didn't get married to get divorced, but 
it doesn't work if only one person is willing to try or one person sees a problem. And unfortunately, when you have domestic violence involved, there's very little. I always say that you can't reason with the unreasonable. And that's kind of what I was dealing with. So it was just a matter of just, you know, I, I just got to the point where I said, okay, you know what, I just I got to take a stand for myself. I have to, I'm not going to get anywhere with this man. I'm going to live a stagnant life. Things are going to be exactly the same if I don't make a change. But the thing that actually made me officially decide it was over was when I got sick. I got very, very ill somewhere around 2016 to 2017, um, just multiple dozens, about two or three dozen random symptoms, but things that were impacting my life. Um, And there were just so many of them. Doctors didn't know what was wrong. Some said I was a hypochondriac, but eventually I got with a neurologist and another doctor that got me with Mayo Clinic. And it was determined that I had developed upper airway resistance syndrome which is a lung disease that is actually classified as a sleep disorder. And I know that's weird, but the neurologist said it's like having COPD and fibromyalgia all at the same time, which is why I was having all these random autoimmune you know, symptoms as well. But it had been caused by the high level of cortisol, which is a stress hormone, um, pumping through my body at such astronomically high levels for so many decades that my body thought it was fighting something like a cancer. So my white blood cells were depleted. My red blood cell count even had dropped so low. All my organs had dropped to minimal survival um, bases so that, you know, the doctor's like, your body's doing all it can to keep your lungs to make you breathe and and to keep your heart beating. But that's why my vision was coming and going. My hands would go so numb that I couldn't even tear toilet paper off the roll. It it was, I was, it was becoming that I couldn't even function. Um, And that's when I said, okay, you know, I can't, I, I can't take 20 different medications for symptoms the doctor said, you just need to change your life. You need to get out of whatever situation is causing you the stress. And that's when I decided to take a stand for myself and put myself first and, and get out of there. So how were you able to transition in your mindset where you could get in another relationship and receive uh, love and receive a different outcome? than you previously did? That is an amazing question. And thank you for asking it. Um, You know, for me, it was a little bit different than it is for most people because I live in a very small town, um, 90 miles southwest of Chicago now, but small towns work a little differently than the suburbs and the city. So everybody knows everybody. Um, And actually, Um, there is a family, a prominent family in the town that I live in. There's a lot of these people with the same last name. Um, And I'd known the family since I'd moved out here. My son grew up with, you know, many of the children in the family. So um, the gentleman that I'm married to now, I'd known his family upwards of maybe 16, 17 years or so. And I knew him 
five or six years. So we already were friends. Um, you know, again, ran in many of the same circles, saw each other regularly. Um, but it's still loving after a toxic relationship or trauma is a little different. Um, so I am thankful every day that I, I did not have to, you know, or put myself in the situation of having to get to know somebody and get to know the, you know, and all the stresses of, of dating and, and getting with somebody that had already been in place. Um, but, you know, for us, it's a little different because he, I couldn't be with somebody unless they were very gentle and very patient. And, and my husband is almost even too quiet for my comfort level, but it's the perfect amount of quiet. Um, because my head, I've got a million thoughts racing through it as I was coming out of all that toxicity and, and trying to heal and my body, my nervous system's trying to, you know, tell itself, okay, you're safe now, you're safe now. But I would still jump at certain sounds or, you know, sometimes just burst into tears at certain things. And there were so many triggers everywhere and they're not just in places or with people. It could just be sounds or, or sing a certain thing. So, you know, he was very patient and understanding, never questioned, never judged, never got upset with me. He just gave me the space, you know, physically and in my mind to, to, to be able to work through all those things. And it makes therapy so much easier when you know that you won't have to, do, you know, you worry about affecting other people with your baggage or your issues. You never want to do that because then it just makes you feel worse. And you certainly don't want to make anyone feel bad because you're the one going through stuff. But um, he made it very easy. But the one thing that I will say that, you know, I get, a, I've gotten a lot of, um, you know, even people that know us like, oh, it was too soon, too soon, too soon. One, I don't work on other people's timing. It was right for us. And I will say, I don't think that I could have come as far as I have in my healing if I had not had this man love me because I needed kind of the same thing my great grandma gave me. I knew I was lovable. My ex-husband's family, my mother and father-in-law, they loved me. I needed somebody to love me until I could learn to love myself, sort of like training wheels on a bike. My husband held my hand through all my pain, through my healing, through therapy, and loved me. Even on the days that I said, my God, I can't even stand myself, he said, well, you know, I like you better sometimes than I do other times, but I always love you and you are lovable. And I needed that reminder. I needed those positive thoughts put in my mind so until I could speak them to myself. What's the name of your first book? It's called Gasping for Air, The Stranglehold of Narcissistic Abuse. And you help people who have been victims of narcissism? 
Yes, or any type of abuse or domestic violence, because narcissistic abuse is an all-encompassing abuse. So, um, yeah, victims definitely feel very similar pain. And how can people get in contact with you if they needed help? Absolutely. Most people are reaching out to me on Facebook or Instagram. I'm under Dana S. Diaz author on both platforms. Um, but I am also on my website, DanaSDiaz.com. There's a contact button there and there are also links to the Facebook and Instagram. And um, yes, absolutely. If anyone has questions or just needs to vent, I do try very hard um, to respond to everybody timely um, just to be that person that they know they can safely, you know, release whatever they need to release to. What is your one to grow on? What valuable piece of information would you like to leave our audience with? With regard to abuse, and I'm going to say this because October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, I think that people need to remember that abuse is not always visible. It's not always going to be black eyes and hand marks and bruises. There's a lot of abuse that happens that is on the inside of the victim. So just remember that. Remember um, that they're in the same amount of pain as somebody who does endure the physical abuse and, you know, just to be there to help them without judgment. Thank you for listening to The New Mind Creator Podcast with your host, Maurice, The New Mind Creator. This podcast has been sponsored by Abundant Sports and True Serum. Head over to www.mauriceflornary.com to receive more motivation and insight to help create your new mind.